You must complete three tasks before the full moon. Also, watch out for the rebels in the hills. We watch Pan's Labyrinth. We are the film fellas. We watch random movies that you love, hate, or have never heard of, and then we talk about them. I'm Greg, and I'm fit as a fiddle and ready for love. I'm Nick, and I don't own a six-sided dice. I'm Caleb, and I haven't even checked, but I'm positive I was the first film fellow to watch the new Phineas and Ferb movie, just so you, listener, know where my loyalties lie. I'm Robbie, and uh, I own a collection of Aesop's Fables and Grimm's Fairy Tale. Let's get into it! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 10th episode of Film Fellas. We never thought we would make it this far. We thought by now Nick would have left us to go do his own solo project and Robbie would have lost all his money on his crippling Fabergé egg habit. <laughs> but here we are, we're still together, and we're still doing Film Fellas. <laughs> this week we watched Pan's Labyrinth. This was Robbie's pick. Robbie, please tell us a little bit about this movie and why you picked it. All right, so I really like this movie. It was something I'd never watched before, but other people had talked about. I like dark stories, and I was like, okay, fine. I guess I'll bite the bullet and watch it with you guys. And uh, I really liked it. It's a Guillermo del Toro film, and it definitely, definitely is his film. All right, let's start off with a one-sentence summary. Robbie, why don't you start off? Pan's Labyrinth, a gory fairy tale set in Spain's Civil War. Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. Cool. <laughs> All right, Caleb. Actually, yeah, I'll go next. <clears throat> My one sense summary is Una película emocionante sobre un cuento de hadas y un drama político. I spent an Ooh. entire week devoting myself to the study of Castilian Spanish and I'm greeted with blank stares. Thank you guys. Oh no, I was, I was shocked. <laughs> that was good. Can you translate it for us? That was very uh, good. That was my best attempt at speaking Spanish with a Castilian accent or affect. It is Spanish for a movie about that. fairy tales and political drama. Ah. So I'm a little distraught because I also was doing mine in Espanol, but I'm very not good at pronunciating, pronouncing, enunciating and pronouncing at the same time. Anyway. It's a good portmanteau. Yes. I did take up until Spanish too, so. Alicia en el País de las Maravillas de Guillermo del Toro, a.k.a. Alice in Wonderland by Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. My one sentence summary is a fantastical nightmare is still not as scary as living under fascist control. Wow. Ooh. He's correct. Which is, yeah, basically what that movie's about. Next, we are going to get into the synopsis. We are going to jump around and describe it poorly and as quickly as we can. Spoilers ahead, people. This movie came out in 2006, but if you haven't seen it yet, you don't want to listen to this part. That's right. Robbie, please start us off. All right. So we start off in a cold open in this stone statuary area where this little girl is lying, bleeding from her nose and mouth, and is slowly coughing as she dies. And then we all of a sudden see her in a nice little carriage as she's hopping along with her mom going toward their new house because her dad is dead and her new father is going to be El Capitan, the captain, who uh, is actually a fascist dictator captain. Bellis. 
as they're driving along, the mother is like, oh, my stomach is not feeling well because she is with child, mm. which is why they're going to live with the captain. And so they cause stop. Of a bellyache. <laughs> so they, they stop and pull over for a second so she can get some air. And Ophelia, our main character, wanders into the woods and finds this statue and finds a rock and places it in there. And then this little bug comes out and she's like, oh, it's a fairy because she's really into fairy tales and reading and whatnot. They get back in the car and they go to the new house and meet the captain, fellas. So Ophelia arrives and she's not very fond of the captain as she tells Mercedes, one of his assistants, he's not my dad many times in a row. And she's really fond on picture books. The captain doesn't really like her and sort of only has his mom or her mom there in order to have her birth him a son. So weird character dynamic already coming out. Then all of a sudden she's exploring. Fellas. (laughs) All right. So it's it's up to me to to get some headway. So Ophelia and Carmen go to sleep that night. Carmen's her mother, by the way. And then Ophelia is revisited by the fairy, this big bug that she saw earlier. The bug takes a look at one of Ophelia's fairy tale books and is like, oh, okay. And then the bug turns into a fairy. Now the fairy leads Ophelia to this uh, labyrinth that's just outside of Captain Vidal's house. And it's, it's like a garden, but it's also like a labyrinth maze. The fairy leads Ophelia down there where she meets this creepy looking fawn that tells her that she is Princess Moana of the Underworld. And she must complete three tasks so that she can return to the underworld where she will be the rightful queen. Bellas. So she's like, okay, that, that sounds good. I'm going to do that then. And she gets this book and she opens it up because it's supposed to tell her what to do and it's blank. And then he's like, the fawn's like, well, don't worry. You know, it's going to fill in when it comes time. So she wakes up. She's at home again, but she has this book with her. And she looks into it and it's still blank. But then as she flips through, it tells her like, oh, well, you have this first trial. And the first trial is that she needs to go in and get a key from this evil toad that's killing off this tree. So meanwhile, while all this is happening, the captain is getting all these people together for this big dinner. So he wants her dressed up like a little doll. And so she's in this really nice, pretty outfit. And her mom is like, you know, just just deal with it. It, it, you know, father is just a word. You know, we just want to be happy. So she goes off and she wants to try and find this tree so that she can fill this void because she doesn't want to be there anymore. And she finds this dead, gnarled old tree with a big hole in the middle. And she decides that she's going to crawl in there. So she crawls through all this mud with all these bugs crawling all over her and on her face. And she finds this frog. And uh, the frog's this big, mean frog. And she tricks it by giving it the little magic stones that's supposed to kill it and make the key pop out. So the frog eats the stone, the key pops out of it, bellows. So Ophelia grabs How the key, doing? and when yeah. she comes outside of the tree, she finds out that her brand new dress is in the mud, and she, she goes home. Her mother is like, oh, I'm very disappointed in you. You need to go to bed without supper. So while this is happening, the captain is at his dinner, being real captain he's like, oh, we're going to take down these rebels that are in the woods. So Ophelia goes back to the fawn and hands her hands him the key and says, hey, I got the key. And he's like, great. Now you need to take the second piece is you're going to take this chalk and you're going to draw on the doorway and you're going to use the key to open the lock. Fellas. The fawn also gives her one bit of advice and says, you have to go open the thing with the key, but there's going to be a feast there. Don't eat anything. Nothing. Nada. Los todos de nada. And she's like, oh, um, 
Okay. So she goes in there and it's the most memorable part of the movie because it's the pale man. There's a big feast. All of a sudden there's this creepy dangly thing. The guy who played Abe Sapien played it. <laughs> and she goes, the fairies guide her to like where to put the key in. She gets the thing out of the keyhole and she goes to leave. And she's like, dang, look at those grapes. Cause there's a bunch of grapes that are like perfectly like photogenic. And then she yes, goes, grapes. And then she's like, you know what? That's pretty darn good. I'm going to have another grape. And the pale man who has pictures of him slaughtering babies on his wall in a pile of children's shoes puts eyeballs in his hands and starts chasing her and eats two of the fairies. And she's like, oh, my God. And she has to run. She leaves. And that's it. Fellas. While all this has been going on, there's been this side plot about the rebels that are just in the hills. We find out that the doctor and Mercedes who are living with Captain Vidal and in his employ are in league with the rebels and they go and trying to send them supplies and the doctor cuts off someone's leg because it's injured, not just because, you know, because it's like... Just for funsies, yeah. Yeah, just for funsies because he's a doctor <laughs> and he, he needs the experience just in case he actually has to use it. <laughs> but anyway, so Mercedes hatches a very bright plan to to get a copy of the key to the storeroom so the rebels can have supplies like you know food and cheese and tobacco which is very necessary for fighting wars so they're setting all that up captain vidal is shaving constantly clean shaven guy then the fawn goes to ophelia and says hey you ate the grapes i know you ate the grapes oh because ophelia shows the fawn that two of the fairies got eaten there's only one left and so the fawn is very upset and says no you, you can't you've ruined it all and he disappears fellas so Ophelia is upset because not only is she losing her chance to try and go to the underworld and fill his fairy tale but also her mother has been in so much pain and her mom has a bleeding episode where she nearly passed out nearly faints and she's lying there, and she's like, what am I going to do? How am I going to save her? And she has this mandrake root that she puts underneath the bed as part of the fairy tale. As long as she keeps this mandrake fed, her mom's going to be okay. But the mom, who is feeling better at this point, is slowly getting better until the father comes in, and Vidal is like, what is this under the bed? What is this? And he pulls it up, and he looks at it, and he's like, are you a traitor? Are, are you doing some weird witchcraft? And uh, gets upset and leaves. And the mother gets all distraught because she's like, stop believing in fairy tales. They're not real. Takes the mandrake and throws it in the fire. And as soon as she does, she, all of a sudden she, has, she starts giving birth and she falls and the doctor comes in. And even though she gives birth to the little boy, she dies in childbirth. And now Ophelia is all alone. Fellas. So then the captain is like, all right, we got to take out these rebels. So he's grabs a bunch of his dudes and they go into the woods and he just starts taking out rebels and, you know, hiding behind trees and pop, 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 pop. And there's a sweet firefight in the woods and they're trying to find one who was left alive and most people have been shot and are about to die and can't talk. So they're just double tapping them, taking them out. And then they find a dude who's only been shot in the leg. So they take him back to the storeroom and they tie him up and they're like, hey, you're gonna talk. And the way we're going to make you talk is I have all these torture instruments and one by one, I'm going to keep using them on you until you talk. And eventually the dude talks and Mercedes finds out and she's like, oh, I got to get a message to the rebels that they know. Fellas. So after he finds out that was it El Tartar, El Tata, he ends up giving out his secrets because 
torture is quite effective sometimes. His name is Tarta. Tarta. Ah. Vidal, the captain, finds out that his doctor has been using the same antibiotics that the rebels are, and he finds out he's a traitor, and he shoots the boy. And then he finds out, Mercedes is also a traitor. So he goes and ties her up. Secretly, she hid a knife. So he's about to go do the torture thing he did on Tarta, but she stabs him and then gives him a joker slash on his mouth. Fellas. Mercedes tries to escape and abscond with Ophelia because the two of them bond quite well because they're kindred spirits. Meanwhile, Captain Vidal is wondering how he got those scars and how he can make them go away. He stitches himself up roughly and then he immediately downs some whiskey. But Mercedes and Ophelia are caught once more and it looks like they're going to be gone for good. But the rebels save them just in time and Mercedes gets away. Actually, Ophelia didn't go with Mercedes. Ophelia went with Mercedes the first time Mercedes tried to run away. But Mercedes just runs out of there, and Ophelia is left to be visited by the fawn for a third time, saying that he will give her one last chance. She has to take, his baby, or take her baby brother and run all the way to the labyrinth. So Ophelia grabs her baby brother and drops a lot of sleeping potion into Vidal's whiskey and runs away, but not before the rebels attack the compound and Vidal spots Ophelia. Bellas. So Ophelia is running with the baby, going toward the labyrinth on foot, and then Vidal's coming in from behind, and she goes in and dives through this crack in the wall, and all of a sudden the wall seals itself back up. Vidal's getting very dizzy now, and he, because the potion's starting to take effect, and he doesn't know where she's going, so he has to take the long route. And Ophelia is there in the center now. She's right next to the hole, and she asks the farm, like, okay, what are we going to do? And he's like, we only need one thing left. We need the blood of an innocent, and then you'll be fine. And your brother is here. All we need is a single drop of blood. Just prick his finger, and it'll be okay. And she says, no, he's my brother. And he's like, would you really want to give up your chance of being a queen, your chance of eternal life, just to save this boy you barely even know. And she says, yes, because I love him. You know, he's my brother. And at this point, the fawn's like, fine, as you wish, as Vidal sneaks up behind her. And she turns around and he grabs the baby. And as soon as he grabs the baby, he turns around and shoots her. And she starts bleeding and starts falling backward and falls down. And we have a shot very similar to the beginning where she was alone and choking on her own blood. Then we go to the outside where he's holding the baby and now all the rebels are around him. And he gives the baby to Mercedes and says, well, tell my son, you know, I died bravely. And she's like, I'm not going to do that. He'll never even know who you are. And you're going to die without a legacy. He's like, what? Blam. And then he's dead. And then she goes over to find Ophelia. And Ophelia is slipping away. But as this is happening, Ophelia's soul is going into the underworld. And she's being introduced to her real mother and father. And she's very happy because she'll be here for eternity and everything will be smiles and sunlight and fun as her life slowly slips away. And then when she finally does accept her role as princess to the underworld, she dies. The end. Yeah, like I said, we're going to do it poorly. I'd <laughs> <laughs> like everyone else. This one was a rough one because of the, the cross-cutting the two stories. Mm-hmm. At a lost place of what happens when. Yeah. Yeah. Man, good job, that guess. middle was kind of like, Ugh. Hey, you know, I'd, I'd like other people to try to do this. Like, it is not as easy as it would appear unless I think we did good. movie a ton. All right. 
So that was Pan's Labyrinth, a quick summary of it. It is a dark fantasy fairy tale. It does not shy away from the gore. And it is a very good movie. I love this film. I'm glad that I watched it with you guys because I was watching it like more analytically. So I was really trying to pay attention to all the themes and stuff, which there were a lot. And I'm just really happy that we watched it. So to start off with the discussion, so what was your guys' favorite scene? Greg, why don't you start us off? I would have to say, probably just because it's the most visually fantastic, is probably the Pale Man scene. It's got that really extravagant banquet, the table he's in front of. And just the part to where he's not moving for most of it until she eats. And then there's just that crack of the fingers and he slowly comes to life. It's just really beautiful and creepy scene and a good character creation. Mm -hmm. I found out that I can hold my breath for approximately three and a half minutes. You breathe it all during that scene. It's about as long as that scene lasts. (laughs) Uh, For the record, though, actually, I think, because Robbie, this was the first time you've seen this movie. Yeah. I've seen this movie three times. So even on the third time, I still like just I don't breathe for that whole scene. You know it's coming, but still you just can't. It's his thin legs. Yeah, those cannot support his body and his no eyes. You don't you don't like get a good look at the legs until the very end part. But yeah, that whole costume is absolutely rad in the most horrific way. So I guess since I've been talking, I will talk about my favorite scene, which <laughs> is the toad scene, which I don't quite know why, because it's pretty gross. Like it's, But I think it is the most fairy tale part of the movie. But it is also the scene that captures the essence of what this movie is about, because it intercuts so much with the Vidal storyline that it is just pretty much the thesis of the movie in one scene. My favorite scene is when she sees the fawn for the second time, and he's just snacking on some meat while he's, like, giving her this whole prophecy. <laughs> like, he doesn't, like, he's, like, his whole life is waiting for her to, like, guide her, yet he's just eating some, like, jerky while talking to her and giving her, like, <laughs> all this information. Like, here's a book. <laughs> yeah fairy would you like some <laughs> he's hungry man it takes a lot of energy to support that big head so my favorite scene actually is the ending i really love the pale man scene it was great but the juxtaposition between the two shows ending together culminating in the fact that she's sacrificing herself for her brother because the rest of her family is gone and so her only family left is this little boy. And she's willing to give it all up for him. And then Vidal choosing, I mean, he's already been irredeemable up to this point, but choosing to shoot her and then try and have his legacy in this child when he gets his comeuppance and he gets nothing. It drives home that she got shot and she's gaining everything because she sacrificed herself. He sacrificed somebody else and now he's getting nothing. His entire legacy and his future is gone. Yeah, and I like that. There's just just little illusions throughout the whole movie where he's like, I don't care about these people. If you have to save either my wife or my son in childbirth, save the son. Your job, you need to rest and get better because you are carrying my son. That's what you do. The opening scene that introduces him, like as soon as Carmen gets out of the car and 
they have that shot where he like just puts his hand on her stomach to to meet his son. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever seen a creepier version of some of a father <laughs> looking at a baby bump like that. It's it's creepy and unsettling for some reason, and I don't know why. Yeah, when I first watched this movie a couple years back, the whole time I was convinced that she was carrying like the Antichrist because all he cared about was like pop out that baby and he knew it was a boy. And then when they do the root thing under the bed, I'm like, this is some satanic shit. (laughs) Some folklore stuff. The fawn gives away the ending when he shows the statue of him, a girl holding the baby. I was like, that's totally the child that and Ophelia. I mean, to be fair, the opening shot gives away the ending. Oh, yeah. yeah, so there's <laughs> no reason to stand on ceremony after giving away all the dudes. I do it's love where, he's, where the fawn's like, why aren't you working on the second task? And she's like, well, my mother's really sick. And he's like, oh, I got you, dog. Just take this, just take this mandrake root, put in some blood. It's cool. <laughs> I, I want to know, does she have to Very change helpful. the milk out every other day? Or is it just like, let that milk rot? I mean, he didn't say... I feel like well, he said when, the second fresh. time she was going to replace the milk, and that's when the captain caught her. Oh, okay. I mean, it would start to stink pretty quickly yeah, otherwise. Yeah. It, it did stink, though, when Vidal found it. All right. So, favorite scenes out of the way. What is your guys' thought on Guillermo's take of dark fantasy? Like, do you think this is – would you count this more as a fantasy or a thriller or horror – what would you count it as? Because it has elements of all three. Definitely a fantasy. It mm-hmm. harkens back to the early European and probably Latin fairy tales where it's more about scaring kids into being good than it is about if you're good, you'll get this. It's more like you know Krampus or mm-hmm. the original grim fairy tales and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm with Greg on this one. I think, weirdly in my mind... This movie is an active competition with the musical Into the Woods for trying to be like, oh, yeah, you, you like fairy tales? But do you remember that they're really messed up and they're actually like, we shouldn't tell them to kids. They're for adults. And in my mind, Pan's Labyrinth accomplishes that goal a lot better than Into the Woods. That's a personal opinion. I have not watched Into the Woods, so I would not know. Mm, well, but take your face as you disagree. Well, I don't think that Into the Woods is necessarily about like the concept of, hey, look, it's scary. It's just a story about a baker trying to deal with fairy tales existing in his world. Hmm. But like, as far as like fairy tales are bad or like aren't as good, the Brothers Grimm movie, that's where it's really about. But back to Pan's Labyrinth. (laughs) I would still say this is a fantasy fantasy movie (laughs) because it's Ophelia's story and she sees all this like messed up stuff happen around her and she's like you know what I'd rather be a princess do you guys think that it's just fantasy or is it actually happening see I was totally thinking that Robbie was going to be in the camp that thinks that it's all make believe and it's like a coping system for Ophelia's trauma but foreshadowing (laughs) yeah yeah, I I want what do you think Caleb I have not placed myself in a camp. I merely sit back and see like, wow, they really thought this out. Like you cannot commit to one side 
Totally, because there is contradicting evidence on both sides, and it's so well balanced that you could just pick and choose and be right. I think that it is all in her head because in the final scene where she gets shot, you can see the fawn is perfectly in frame while Videl is like after her. Like Videl's looking at her with her holding the baby, and the fawn is right behind her, but he doesn't like notion that he sees it at all, which could be the sleeping pills or the sleeping drug he has. But mm-hmm. yeah, there's no mention of what the fuck is that moss toting giant thing with weird legs. Yeah, it seems like the the sleeping solution is actually having an opposite effect than what in normal movies, where in normal movies it would kind of cause you to hallucinate and see things. This, mm-hmm. it kind of made him not see the fantastical elements around him. It's a twisted fairy tale. It twists those tropes on its head. Robbie, do you think it's real or fantasy? I am in a different camp, oh. because, and it's kind of a cop-out camp, but I, I am ready to fight for it. And that is the fact that I believe it is absolutely both. The fantastical parts for Ophelia are real to Ophelia. And mm. I do believe that her, she is a fairy tale, you know, from her perspective, she's a fantasy and a fairy tale. And I think she does actually go through all these processes because otherwise, how would she find the mandrake route? How would she find these places? I really think that's real. But on the flip side, the doll's entire storyline, I think, is not magical at all. There's no magical interference whatsoever. And at the end, when you see both of them together and he doesn't see everything happening, I think that's when it's complete. The two storylines are completely divorced. So mm-hmm. he never actually, because he's too old, because he has no soul, really, he has no ability to look for this. He can't see it. So this is kind of that... If you're not a child, you can't see it realism. So it's kind of in both camps. But that's what I'm leaning toward. Uh, yeah, I had that once, same... I actually think that it's fantastical. I had that same thought that maybe just the adults couldn't see it because they weren't open to that kind of thing. But what I do know is that Guillermo del Toro said that the fantasy stuff is real. And there's little hints yeah. that, that prove that it's real. Like what? the chalk at the end, the, the captain picks it up, the fantastic chalk that she got from the fawn. At the very end, it's like, if you know where to look and the flower blooms, that's a, a sign from mm-hmm. the director that this was actually real. I also think that movies are open to interpretation, so you can think about it either way you want. I am kind of in Caleb's camp, where I like to see what other people think. I like to enjoy the experience of it. It's hard to tell, because they're so different in that there's the bright fantastical creatures and fairies and all kinds of crazy things and then just real war real rebels real death so it could very easily be a coping mechanism or it could very much be real and everyone else is focused on other things right so let's let's can we talk about that uh that real war and real death for a bit because i feel like this is a big personality of the movie is that the fairy tale aspect and the civil war aspect are totally intertwined and there is absolutely no separating them because of how the camera works and how intercut each scene is as in Ophelia will be doing her thing with the frog and it will cut very drastically over to Vidal's storyline and then it'll cut right back 
within the span of 20 or so seconds. So yeah, a lot of cross-cutting mm -hmm. during scenes. Mm -hmm. I think that it would be, it's really interesting that the storyline is branched off like that into two parts. But I really think there's actually three. I think there's three concurrent fairy tales being told. The Civil War is one of them. I don't think it's like a fa here's the fa here's one fantasy and here's like you know reality. I think all three of these are different fantastical fairy tales told separately. With Mercedes at the head of one, Fidel at the head of one, and Ophelia at the head of one, and all three of them go through their own separate plot lines and storylines with their own kind of like touching on each other's characters. But for the most part, the roles of these characters are different in all three stories because fairy tales aren't all the same. And if you take a look at like, for example, the difference between Aesop's fables and Grimm's fairy tales and then Grimm's fairy tales and, you know, uh, Mother Goose Nursery type rhyme, there's differences in how, how they're structured. But I see that the doll storyline is more like Riding Hood or Rumpelstiltskin as far as its structure, its pacing. Did you just say Riding Hood? I heard Riding Hood. Like Little Red Riding Hood? Yes. Ah. Uh, yeah, with, with cutting over the first name wolf. basis. They're on, yeah. they're on a middle and last name basis. Anything but first name. He's seen Hoodwinked. I have seen Hoodwinked. So I just think all three of those storylines are separate from each other. And I didn't really, really start thinking that Mercedes was separate until I did a rewatch because I watched it twice. Ooh. Once because I wanted to see it the first time, the second part actually looking for like clues and stuff. And I think there's strong hints at it, even though like obviously the two big ones are Vidal's and Ophelia's. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really considered Mercedes like a separate protagonist, as it were, because you do spend about an equal amount of time on her story as you do on the captain's story. Yeah, I, I don't know what I'm going I, I hadn't, <laughs> Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that either because she is intertwined with Vidal's story quite a bit and the the two do come to a head when Vidal captures Mercedes and ties her up and she escapes with her, her kitchen paring knife and she stabs him because her brother is the leader of the resistance, or at least like yeah, he Pedro. gets to yeah, he, Pedro. He gets to go first, so I don't know if that means he's the leader, but like he's in the front of the line at every time we we see him. So, yeah, I just don't know how much. I mean, she is a significant player in in the movie, but I don't know how much that necessitates her being in her own storyline. Well, from from a from a cinematography perspective, though, the only three people whose perspectives we ever see are Vidal. Mercedes and Ophelia. Every scene has them or a direct action of theirs affecting. Whereas we don't really see the boys on their own. We only see them right as the captain's leaving. We see them as Mercedes goes to get them and when Mercedes comes with the doctor. Otherwise, that was the other the thing. The doctor I was, I is tied yeah, in with Mercedes. I was going to ask. So that would be Mercedes and the doctors, who is uh, Dr. Ferrero, I believe? Yes, I think so. Yeah, Ferrero. I kept thinking it was Ferrari for the longest time. I was like, what? I was like, oh, wait, no, it's, oh, it's an actual... It's a different name. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if uh, uh, like Alice in Wonderland counts as a fairy tale. For me, I didn't think of it as three separate plots. I thought of it as one that was centered around Ophelia 
who was sort of like, it was like a dark take in Alice in Wonderland. Like she, when she gets the dress for the dinner, it's literally just a green version of Alice's from the Disney movie where it's the white overlay on the solid color dress. Like even Videl, he has the stopwatch and he's sort of like the rabbit when they first arrive. She's like, oh, you're 15 minutes late, people. And mm-hmm. he's constantly like obsessed with the stopwatch. And then I felt that Tarta, he was sort of like a combination mm-hmm. of Twiddle Dumb and Twiddle D because he couldn't like formulate sentences, even though that was just a stutter and he's not like stupid. He's a stutterer, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then people like Mercedes is sort of like, I think she's more like the Mad Hatter because she's what causes the downfall of Ophelia because she pushes everything to the extreme with being the informant. And yeah, she's like that walrus that, that eats the oysters. Yes. What? <laughs> and then the fawn is more like the Cheshire cat because he appears and disappears and he's just there to guide her into his goal. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't think about that too. Yeah, I, I never really connected it fully with Alice in Wonderland. Like, the illusions are there, but there's also, like... It was certainly one of the influences, definitely. Yeah, there's also, you know, I believe Greg said that, that Krampus is definitely an illusion there with the Pale Man. Though I do believe there are a lot of child-eating trolls. In, Any kind of, yeah, right? fairy tale has child and eaters. There's some... Yep. There's some Wizard of Oz imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, the red shoes at the end. Red shoes at the end. And, oh, uh, uh, did you find it interesting that the outfit that she was wearing at the end, the red outfit, was a mirror, like, complete opposite of the green outfit that she was wearing because Vidal wanted her to. Everything she was wearing when it was she was supposed to have that new dress to go see Vidal was green, like a deep green. Mm-hmm. And the end, her dress and everything is complete opposite color, this deep ruby red. I liked how it just mirrored that because she's she does the it does the slow pan where she's walking forward, which earlier in the movie she does when she's showing off her green dress about how pretty she looks, and it's the exact same shot when she walks out and she's all dressed in red at the end. Yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. To really show that she has escaped from that world and gone fully into this world, yeah, the underworld, like as it were. complete with the red bows in her hair. That's cool. Yeah. Any other fairy tale allusions that we noticed while we're on the subject? Uh, Jiminy Cricket with stick butt. Yep. Yeah. I didn't think about that, but yep. <laughs> My favorite thing and, about uh, Ocarina of Time with the stick bug being Navi, basically. Stick okay. bug. Follow me. Come this, this way. way. This way. <laughs> Over here. The, the classic pantheon of fairy tales. <laughs> <laughs> Listen. My favorite thing is um, there's like a whole new meme on the internet that's just, it's Rick Roll, but it's just a stick bug dancing. And it's like, you got stick bugged. And I forgot that, like, it opens up. The first magical creature is a stick bug. And I'm like, ah, it's researched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fairy. Uh, that is actually what that fairy is saying in fairy Spanish. I will never give you up or let you down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, you got stick bug. It's a complex language. You can speak that in just a few syllables. Based on the color Robbie was talking about, I thought it was cool that as the movie goes on and you really start to get more separation of the fantasy world and the real world, the war world, I guess, mm-hmm. the war world starts to get more and more desaturated and just kind of more monotone and the fantasy worlds become more colorful and more bright. Yeah. Like, uh, like the Fawn's face gets a lot more illumination than it ever has. Like in his last three scenes, he looks almost less terrifying. Especially at the end where like, 
his hair color changes and he's just mm-hmm. doesn't have as much moss on him. He just is a much more friendly looking character. Yeah. His I breath really must smell so bad. It must be awful. Because he gets really bad. close to breath, a couple times. And it's <laughs> just like breath. he was eating raw meat and like look at those teeth. That's some like morning breath times three at you. I really like how the fairies and the fawn, like the, the frog and stuff, how they're less fantastically based of where they're like pretty or shiny, but more like they're beings of nature, that type mm. of thing. Because in the original folklore and fairy tales, you would have dryads and stuff, wouldn't be mostly person and then a little bit of these other things. They would be a being of whatever it is. And so fawns weren't just, you know, half man and half goat or, you know, well, actually they're satyrs. But you would have them to be where, like, no, they're made of wood. They're beings of nature. And I really liked how the fawn was represented here. It looked more mythologically accurate, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think that's just Guillermo del Toro's style overall. Like Hellboy and The Shape of Water. He constantly has, like, these... What? And the Jaegers. Yes. He has mm-hmm. these um, creatures that are very almost creepy in their appearance even though it's just showing off that if you're a fawn you're from nature like he even talks about how the only ones who can pronounce his name are the the air or the winds and the the trees Mm. like he's so ancient that like probably humans didn't fully exist back then when he was conceived as a a being it doesn't translate into human language Speaking of the fawn and the pale man, both played by actor Doug Jones. Doug Jones. He, <laughs> he spent a <laughs> lot of time in makeup, obviously, for this. There's a lot of cool things going on with his costumes. Like the fawn's legs have the, that backwards kind of knee bend. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. To do that, they just built it around his leg, put on a green sock, and just keyed it out later so that he could really support himself because I didn't want to do like CG legs and make it all weird. So he's interesting. Another thing, Doug Jones was the only one who spoke English. Like he only spoke English in an entirely Spanish cast and crew. (laughs) (laughs) And Uh, Guillermo del Toro was the only one who was bilingual. So basically he had to do all his communication through Guillermo del Toro, but he insisted that he learn all of his lines and Ophelia's lines so that he could say the lines to her and know when to react to her. And he eventually did get dubbed over, but he was so adamant about, I'm going to learn these words. I'm going to know how to pronounce them and when to say them so I can get a good performance. I was wondering if he was dubbed because he had such like a deep voice that like he naturally has a very high pitch voice overall. Mm -hmm. And then to have it be like, Morido. I'm like, oh, Doug Yeah, they dubbed him over, but because he took the time to learn how to say the words, it was easier to match his mouth because he was making the proper pronunciations and everything. Mm-hmm. And That's it made really it easier cool. for a child actress to respond to the language she speaks. Than <laughs> Which, when, speaking of child actress, Ophelia kind of kills it in this one. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Ivana Baquero, she kills it. There are those scenes, particularly the scene where she is talking to her mom's st- stomach to her brother while mom is asleep and she and she's saying like hey uh, hermano you're making mom sick please don't make her sick and just just come out and so that she can get better again 
and then I'll, I'll make you a prince. And that scene is awesome. That is just the performance alone that carries it. I mean, there's also atmosphere, but like it, the performance is what makes that scene work. And it is pretty cool. Yeah, she, the, the performance in this, across the board, they were amazing. Both, like, child actors and actresses always are standouts when they're really good, because it's like, wow, you did a very good job, and you were very young. Mm-hmm. But, like, Ophelia was a big standout actress, but also, like, Badal, he pulled that off well. Sometimes it's hard to make an irredeemably evil villain not seem like he's ripped out of a cartoon. This one seemed like, oh, no, this is a crazy sadist, and I can tell, while not going overboard. Yeah, I had read that actor normally does, like, comedy or melodrama, and the really? Spanish crew was like, I don't know if this guy's going to be able to pull it off. And Guillermo del Toro's like, no, I, I have faith he'll do it. Bad. And he was right, because he was really good. <laughs> he gave me big, inglorious bastard vibes. Yeah, where it's subdued, but still just right underneath. It's just so evil and bad. Especially, like, the torture scene, how nonchalantly he, like, introduced all the tools and, like, here we'll become friends. We get to this one, we're going to be bonded like family. Like, oh, shit. Yeah, Yeah, like, the the torture scenes, I mean, I I have issue with torture scenes in general for certain, for, you know. You don't say. But, um, yeah. As if any of us love a good torture scene. (laughs) Yeah, I do enjoy the Saw series. Yeah, if it's good. <laughs> but the, the scene where he he kills the hunter and his and his son, that scene was good foreshadowing because he pulled that off haunting. It, it's like it was so beneath him, there was no reason for him to really freak out about it. He's just going to bust this guy's teeth in with a flashlight. It was yeah, it was so, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, the bottle of alcohol. Oh. I thought it was flashlight. My bad. Oh, no. It's, it's totally, but, yeah. During the Spanish Civil War? No, they had torchlights. Yeah, just... dude. Mercedes but, had, a, so... had a lantern. That is the... That was... That was the lighting <laughs> sort of choice. She, she can afford a flashlight. It was 1944. They had flashlights, dude. Okay, well, never mind. Yeah, how dare you? But also, <laughs> they didn't have it at that house. That That is true. So, Maybe anyway, Mercedes so didn't, he... but the soldiers might have. Okay. Right. But they, they knocked his teeth in. He, he just like, wham, 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 wham. And the entire time, he never had a he facial smashes mold. smashes his skull in. It's just like yeah. the teeth in. Smashes his forehead yeah. in. And, no. and that's so but early in the enti- movie like that the it shows time, how... He never moves. Yeah. And it's one of the earliest examples. It's early in the movie, and it shows... He's like, oh, you guys are rebels? Well, it's all this paperwork. And they're like, we're just hunters. And it's like, oh, bam, 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 don't lie to me. And then they find the rabbits. And he's like, don't bring me this fucking bullshit. Do your, do your job and search better. I like how he didn't check away. at all. Yep. He checks and, after and, they're dead. And he's like, you know what? Maybe they weren't lying. <laughs> oh, you guys should have done this. Don't pass on <laughs> me about this. I'm the captain. <laughs> and it puts everything that he did up till then, all his scenes with Ophelia and her mom in perspective, very quickly. It's like, oh, those vibes of creepiness I was seeing? Yeah. Yeah, they're bad. Yeah, and it's not that her mom's like in love with this guy or anything. It's just, this is how we're going to survive this. If we, uh, while we're still in the rabbit, I have my one nitpick of the movie. The nitpick? Nitpick? Yes. Nitpick! So, 
when he gives the rabbits to Mercedes, like, hey, stew these, and she gives them to the cook. In one second, there's a switch shot to the to the two older cooks. She has already dunked those rabbits and started de-skinning them. She did not have time to do that in that one second cut shot. They were talented cooks. <laughs> Fair enough. That's it. Is that That's all you all got? And that was Nick Picks. Just one. Pretty impressive. It was too dark to see most of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie, it's your week. You want to just get into it? All right. I mean, you're basically doing that anyway, so. Is it that Nick, If time? you please. And now it's time for Robbie's themes. Take it away, Robbie. All right. So the biggest theme of this show, other than the cycle of life and death, I think is the drive for your legacy, the drive for future. Because the environment that Ophelia, Mercedes, and Vidal are in is this civil war. It's not a great place. It's even Vidal, who is technically on top right now because he's trying to feed everyone else, doesn't like Spain as it is. He wants to have a son. He wants to leave a legacy. Mercedes wants her brother to be alive. She's sided with the rebels, but ultimately she just wants to be with her brother and be able to move on as a family. Ophelia wants her dad back, can't get her dad back, so she wants her own future of like something, a home for herself. She loves fairy tales, so she tries to escape it. So we have these three different storylines showing what happens when you start and based on your actions, what their results are. And all three of them have different outcomes. What do you guys think the differences were? Like, what were the choices specifically that differentiated Mercedes, Vidal, and Ophelia? Legacy. What is a legacy? I personally do not believe <laughs> that the legacy or having a legacy is a theme of this movie. I believe it was only a plot point for Videl to have. No one else was really thinking about like, I want to change stuff for the better in order to leave a lasting margin for the next generation. It was only Videl being like, I want to have a son. He felt abandoned by his own father because his father died. That's why he kept messing with the stopwatch and denied that his father accepted that he did die. I feel like that's where his issues stem from. I don't think anyone else was, that was their main drive. It was just him having some psychological damage and really feeling like having a son is the only way he's going to make a lasting mark on the world. I concur. I don't feel like any other character had the luxury of thinking so far in the future. Everyone else was just trying to get through it. The doctor and Mercedes were trying to not get caught sneaking information and supplies to the rebels. Ophelia was just trying to get to the next task so that she could get away from the captain and all the terribleness happening there. The rebels were just trying to get to their next supply drop. So I feel like the captain was really the only one who had the, the luxury, the wealth, and the time to think about the future and what's going to happen. May, the classic high-class, low-class sort of scenario. So if you're high-class, you get themes. If you're low-class, uh, maybe not so much. I think maybe what I'm trying to get at is that they're wanting legacy and future. Future might be better. They're each trying to seek a better future than what they currently have. For Vidal, the future he wants is this perfect pure Spain with his son. But Mercedes just wants, the whole point is that she wants her brother. That, that's her drive. She's a rebel. She wants to get rid of the people causing the problems for Spain. 
but mostly she is focused on her brother. But with Ophelia, she want, she's trying to get some sort of... I think that she's a nice opposite for Vidal in that her dad is dead. And the plot point is that her dad is a tailor. And I don't think that it's that it was just random that he was a tailor when she has these dresses. And that, that's kind of where my brain goes to with that because the focus being on uh, like her dress being those focal points and her wanting to live forever in this new place. And at the end, finding that, you know, her mom is the queen overlord. And I would assume that would probably be her dad then that was sitting opposite in, in her mind's eye or whatever. Yeah, I think But she's was... trying to do escapism too. Here's another contradiction. What? She, Ophelia wasn't doing it to become immortal. She didn't really care about dying. She did it because she felt that was the only option for her because her mom died and Videl was ruining her life overall. So to have a chance to just move on, it was more Can't about the escapism of it and not of a better future for her. It the fawn, though, like... is concerned with it because yeah. when Ophelia fails the second task, the fawn threatens her with the option of mortality. Like he says that you'll live like the humans, you'll die like the humans, and you'll you will not be immortal. No, but you guys do have a good points. Like I might be looking too hard into there, but the other part that I wanted to also cover was obedience and disobedience. I was going to bring up the same thing, Robbie. Authority versus disobedience. Yep. And the, the theory of rebellion with both of them. Because that, in all three cases, shows you what their, their paths are and what happens when you do it. Because Vidal's whole thing is, just do what I say. Like, you guys kill these people when I tell you to kill them. Do what I say you need to do, and you'll live, and you'll be fine. Because he's authoritarian. He's lording over them. Ophelia is told by the fawn, just do what I tell you, do these three trials, do exactly as I say, and you'll be fine. And, you know, you'll get all these things you want. He's acting exactly like Vidal does. But in both cases, with Vidal and with the fawn, Ophelia's like, no, I'm not going to play that way. I'm, you know, I'm my own person. And she has her own drive. Mercedes is like Ophelia in Vidal's portion where Mercedes is that breath of rebellion that kind of brings her down. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. You hit the nail on the head with that. This movie is is a very anti-fascist message, and it's all about the disobedience from, like you said, the two authority figures who just want things the way they want it. So you have your rebels in the mountains. They're being very disobedient of the the new <laughs> naughty boys. Franco, the new <laughs> Franco government. You have Mercedes, like I said, who is a rebel, who is actively subverting what the captain is doing. You have the doctor also. And of course you have Ophelia, who's the most and with the best outcomes. Like when she goes into the chamber of the pale man, she's told, you know, don't eat anything. And she ends up eating it and she still gets out fine. Even though she's told, if you eat anything, you will die. She doesn't die. It's fine. When she goes to put her key in the lock, the fairies are like, oh, do this one. And she's like, no, I think it's this one. And she disobeys, opens yeah. the other door, and still gets the key. Yeah, why does she do that? Because she knew. You don't got to just blindly follow authority. And like, at least she's told to sacrifice her brother. And she's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to disobey your direct order, even though you said you have to follow me exactly. He just, just refuses. And it's interesting with the chances, too. Because 
Nathan keeps saying, like, this is your last chance. Like, I'm going to give you another chance. Adal does the same thing for Mercedes. Because when Mercedes is up there and he's pulling out the storeroom key, that's Fadal posturing. He knows that she has a copy of the key, or at least he has a very good idea of it. And he's flexing on her, basically. And so he tells her, it's like, you know, tell me what's going on. You know, this is, I'm giving you this chance, which, of course, she violates. That whole thing. But both of them do that, and both of them have good endings as long as they're rebelling for what they think is right. Exactly. They both end up, like, Mercedes ends up taking out the captain, and they take over the area. There's no more, like, the captain's group is gone by the end, and the captain. And Ophelia gets to go to the underworld, whether or not you think she actually died, died, and it's in her head, or you feel like her spirit went there. She got, as, as far as we're concerned, told. as far as we're concerned, she got the happier ending. And the fawn at the end is like, you did exactly right by disobeying me. That was the test is you don't just follow blindly fascism. You fight against authority and do what you think is right. And the captain's men, I think, are a good point, too. Because throughout the film, they're spooked as hell. Most of them are like, this guy is crazy. Um, They still follow, but they follow him blindly, and they all die. They all end up getting killed by the rebels. So it's like, the only people who died other than Vidal, were people who obeyed what they were told to do blindly following, with the exception of the rebels. Because the rebels were just rounded up and killed by Vidal's men blindly following the, uh, the orders. What about the doctor? The doctor's an interesting character. Both um, obeys and then disobeys, and then also dies. Not always clean, Caleb. Yeah. The world is messy. Well, maybe it's just because... because they had to crack to get the omelet that is a free Spain. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Let me write that down. <laughs> Nick, what are your thoughts on the authority versus disobedience? I'm not really sure because, like, overall, I do see as, like, it is a reoccurring theme in the show as far as with the fawn. Not, not this isn't discounting him, but are they portraying the fawn as being right? Like, his authority is what you should follow, even though she is rewarded for not following him completely? But I don't think the grape thing was one of the things that she was rewarded for. She ate two grapes and could have died. I feel like but she, she didn't just, die. She could have followed. But she didn't. <laughs> they said she didn't. If but you it, eat or drink she, anything, you will die. And she, and said, she was like no, one second like she would have died. But I don't think she was rewarded for um that part. But isn't it showing that sometimes you you have to follow authority or you do? have a chance to be murdered by a pale man with disobedience there is risk but the yeah, it's more about the right thing fighting for what's rape. right and not blindly following and having human fairy shields yeah what's up with those fairies dying well i mean even the fairies were like hey go put the key in this lock and she's mm-hmm. like no that's not the lock oh yeah female intuition you're focusing more on the details when it's more about not blindly following what you're told. So, question, separate from that, because it just jumped in my head again, and I, remember, and I wrote down that I wanted to ask you guys. The, the bleeding page, when she asks what's going to happen, is it telling the future, or did she trigger it by opening that part of the book? Because it was pretty much immediate when the mother went into the miscarriage bloody labor thing. And you had the picture, which was a Rorschach test of fallopian tubes, and then just a big bunch of blood. 
I think it was telling what was happening because it basically was saying, this is what's happening right now. Go okay. help your mother. That makes sense. That, that was just, that scene just confused me because I was like, is, okay, yeah, so is same. this causing it or is it because it's happening? So that's what, I, I just wanted to get your guys' opinion because that confused. That's what I think. You know, I, I think you're right. Like, I was also confused, but that gives me a good sense of direction. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. I was just like, like what wisdom do you have to impart to us? Well, I think it's pretty clear because it happens and then she throws the book down and runs out there. The amount of blood is not something that just happened. She's been going through this for a minute. Now, Caleb, so this yes. question is specifically for you as someone Boy. who doesn't like horror movies. Uh-huh. What? Because I, I mean, I really like this, and something I noticed is that they did not shy away from gore at all. What is your thought on, do you think that that worked in the movie's favor? Do you think it was a little bit too strong as someone who doesn't like gore? Okay. The gore. You're asking for my thoughts on the gore. <laughs> Sounds like you're stalling. So, I think that like West Side Story, this movie takes its first few minutes to very clearly establish the rules of violence that happen within this world. And the rules are very literal. They are, as I understand, extremely accurate to what actually happens when Captain Vidal smashes that hunter's head in with a bottle and the bottle doesn't shatter. That is a big indication to the audience that like, hey, you know, uh, we're not going to have this expectation for you movie disobeying just as an aside so for some reason i think that because of the story that this movie wants to tell and one of you know fascism and also a dark fairy tale for some reason for me personally it threads the needle and it speaks to me in a way that other movies don't and despite there being some extremely graphic scenes, I can handle it because it serves the story and it's one that I think resonates with me. Definitely. Okay. It's not gratuitous for gratuitous sake. No. It's well, except for that bit when real. itching up his mouth. That one is lingers for a bit, but like you're right. It, it, it is just real. And like you said, it serves a story and it makes a lot of sense. I think it is really there to show the contrast between the fantasy world and the grounded real world because this isn't going to be it's not going to sugarcoat any, anything when tartar gets his um or tarta gets his hand totally <laughs> mangled there's literally a hole between his pointer finger and middle finger and it's just it's so mangled like he can't even keep his fingers straight they're all just messed up and it, and He'll when Videl gets shot in the face during that scene he, he gets shot in his right cheek and his eyes sags because of it and, yeah, and his eyeball rolls back into his head. Yeah. It's just there to show that while Ophelia's off in this fantasy world that is probably real, according to Guillermo del Toro, that the world around her isn't stopping during it. That's my take. So Nick has a prior engagement, and he needs to take off a little bit early. Nick, good talking with you. We will see you next week. I will let you know what the movie is. Always a pleasure, Nick. Hey, Nick. Thanks for accommodating me. Adios, mis amigos. Thanks for being on the pod.
So going back to the torture scene, something that I think is really important for setting the character of the doll is the torture scene with, what was the guy's name? Tarta. Tarta? Tarta. Say the rebel captor. Yeah. The, the, the Captive, I guess. With the rebel. With the rebel captive Tarta. And the reason is because a lot of times, especially if a character is like a father figure or if they're having a lot of exposure in a film, it's important to set audience expectations as far as the character arc goes. Like, could this person be redeemable? There's a couple of ways in a shorthand for film to show that a character is irredeemable. One of them is the trope name, which is kick the dog, so cruelty mm. to animals. Mm-hmm. Another big one is torture. And so the scene where he is slowly going over what each of these tools are going to do and how he's going to use them, the tone of voice that he uses and the way that like, he's obviously going to take sadistic pleasure in this no matter what he does, instantly tells the audience that no, no, there's no redemption for this character. He's gone over the event horizon and we're not going to have a redemption for him in this story. Yeah, he's like a cat with a mouse. He's just playing with the captive. He is like, hey, I know you stutter. If you can count to three without stuttering, I'll let you go. Even ask my my associate here. There's nobody above me, right? I have the authority to let him go. And he's like, yeah, you have the authority to let him go. Knowing that he's so freaked out because he's going through all of these means, the psychological torture of I'm going to use this tool and then I'm going to use this tool and then I'm going to use this tool, but then I'm going to use this tool. Behind Knowing that he has that stutter and he's so just nervous that he can't make it. It starts with the psychological before he just gets even into the physical. That scene is heartbreaking when Tarta gets past one and two, but he just can't keep it together for three. Trying so hard. Yeah, and the way that he fails to count to three resonates with the tone of the movie really well. As in, like, it's not a big way that he fails. He just quickly mumbles over the the for, for, for Trace a couple of times. And then he knows in his heart that he's failed and he starts weeping. And it's not a huge moment. Like, it's not treated like a huge moment. But it still is, if that makes sense. I don't know. It's one of those moments that sort of slips right by or might have been milked in a, in a different movie. But here it is just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it goes back to what Caleb said about it being, Caleb and I were saying about not it being gratuitous for gratuity's sake, but being real. It doesn't actually show the torture, but it definitely shows the aftermath of the torture. Mm-hmm. And not you know that, that, yes, this did happen. But it show, what it does choose to show is that psychological torture beforehand. And that's mm-hmm. all we need to see. Because we don't need to see this poor man getting physically tortured for us to get the point driven across that you know, this is what's going to happen. The aftermath, I agree it was not gratuitous at all, but by the time that he trips over and cannot finish the word three, the audience is completely primed to want Vidal's blood. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, Guillermo did a great job of that. The characterization in this scene was solid. 
It was heartrending. It was disturbing, and it was very well done. Vidal's actor blew it out of the water. That above anything else in that film, that was his crowning moment, as horrible as it was. The actor rocked that scene just because it showed how violent and sadistic he could be without having it be over the top. It was very realistic. It was very disturbing, and it set the audience for a nice catharsis down the way. That um, is uh, when he does get his cup. That is Sergi Lopez. So, from the film fellas to you out there, uh, great job. We love to hate you. <laughs> it, it was it was amazing. You did a great job. And the fact that you guys say he's a comedic actor is like, wow, he must have some range because <laughs> that is that was very good. There's a lot. It'd be a bummer getting pigeonholed when you're like, I have the range. <laughs> it's nice to get the yeah. opportunity to show. And not only that, but it's like. A lot of times, like I said, you can this this type of caricature can become cartoonish, to where they're so unrealistic that it actually deadens the blow a bit because you're like, oh, they're act. No, I could see this person being a freaking serial killer, and being in a position of power, and that's the creepy part that is driven home really well. I mean, it kind of is. Yeah, kills a lot of rebels. Fellas, this movie almost didn't happen. Oh, Guillermo del Toro tends to plot his movies out years in advance. And he had this notebook where he had all of his notes and his drawings and his sketches and his general ideas for this movie in a notebook. Yeah. And he accidentally left it in a taxi. No. And he was like, oh, oh man, no. well, this is a sign that I should just not make this movie. But the taxi driver found it and worked really hard to get it back to him. He disobeyed and his Guillermo boss. Guillermo del Toro was like, well, this is clearly a sign that I need to make this movie. <laughs> so he worked extra hard into getting it produced. Dang. And he was getting a lot of offers after Hellboy from American studios to be like, hey, we'll make this movie and we'll give you all the money you need, but we want to make it in English. And he's like, no, I want it to be in Spanish. I want to make the movie I want. I don't want any changes. I want it to be how it's going to be. And that's what he ended up doing. He ended up making it in Spain. He ended up making it the way he wanted in Spanish and ended up being a great movie for all of us. Mm -hmm. I think actually being an American watching this movie in Spanish gives it that extra layer of wonder and fantasy because mm. it's in a language that I don't speak at least very well uh, because they, I believe well, they speak the Spain Spanish and not uh, Mexican Spanish or Spanish of, of Latinx groups. And so it's, it adds this layer where I don't really know what they're speaking, but you know, the words and sounds that come out of the speakers really cast you into that world and i think it works towards its advantage in this case definitely and then also you know you you see this movie the, because it's it's widely released in america and all of a sudden you get to be one of those people who are like you know what my favorite foreign film is one of the things i really liked about it actually was the scoring and part of that was the yes. fact that because it is in spanish it, it gives it an air of realism that otherwise might not have just because we could do this with you know the nazis and world war ii when we can make changes but you could tell that the cohesive story was stronger because the themes were closer to what guillermo wanted rather than having it be that americanized film which would have probably affected his vision and this is like a pure form of that yeah, most definitely, because when I think about this movie, 
I think about who is this movie for? You know, if you were to try to market this in America based off of its own merits, that it is a fairy tale, but for adults, but also about the Spanish Revolution, that is a, a triple threat of a blockbuster it does not make. Which, which makes me really happy because it won three Oscars and it's a foreign film and it won those multiple Oscars and it really deserved it. And yeah. It's a fantastic movie. And one of the things I wanted to bring up that I noticed in the filmmaking, which you don't get to talk about much is the excellent practical white transitions that happen throughout mm-hmm. the whole movie. They'll be moving across the scene and a, a tree will go in front of the camera. It'll wipe to the next angle or the next scene. And that just keeps happening. Things just practically wiping across the frame to necessitate a cut or a scene transition. Yeah, a lot of tree scene transitions. Uh, and it becomes a very familiar move, but it never loses its weight or its originality. Mm-hmm. And that is just one of the many cool techniques that they use to link the, the fantasy and the reality together. Let's talk a little bit about the CGI, which I'm sure at the time was just yeah. state-of-the-art and fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's a little dated. It doesn't ruin it at all. No because it's still pretty detailed. The only thing that really took me out of it is they show some shots of the woods and these explosions, and it's just terrible looking. Yeah. But I found out is where they were shooting, there was severe drought conditions, so they weren't allowed to use any explosions Mm. or gunshots or anything, so they had to do that CGI. And that's why it looks so bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because there's like two, right? Or three? It's like two, and it's yeah. I'm pretty sure it's the same explosion it's the twice. Same one, just, something. Yeah, because the rebels set an explosion off in the distance, like they blow up a train, and the train derails. And Vidal goes to check on the train, be like, mm, "What happened? What did they take?" And the train people are like, "Oh, well, actually, they didn't take anything." And then just when he's about to figure that out, he turns around and sees the same explosion, but happening over by his house. Yeah, we didn't even bring up the train. Yeah. That's what's hard about trying to do the synopsis. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, but that's why I always preface it by saying it's going to be bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it's our thing. Like, yeah, it, like it, it works nicely. It keeps yeah. it, it puts us all in the same page, roughly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, do, do not listen to it to actually find out the summary of the story. Yeah. Listen to it Hopefully, to hear you about. will have actually seen this movie before we. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just so you know, listener, that is our philosophy is that hopefully you will be watching this movie along with us and then be able to engage in discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Robbie, I have a delightful story that you'll enjoy. Ooh. So Guillermo del Toro got to watch this movie sitting next to Stephen King. I've heard this. I was going to ask you about this. In a, hang on, let me tell the story. Okay. (laughs) So Guillermo del Toro got to watch the movie next to Stephen King in a screening. And he said during the Pale Man scene, Stephen King started squirming and becoming visibly frightened. And Guillermo del Toro likened it to winning an Oscar. Because if you can scare Stephen King, you can scare anybody in the audience. (laughs) That is excellent. Uh, that that scene is so. I mean, it's. I'm sure it's iconic. I've only you know mm-hmm. just seen it, so it's not like I can be like, oh, it's a classic. Because certainly the most striking visual when he puts his hands up to his head with the eyes in there. Yeah, like it's the most iconic visual in the whole movie. Yep. 
it is very unnerving, unnerving and disturbing, and I, I really liked it. The part where he eats the fairies, and it doesn't like give a cut or like weird like no, you're seeing the fairies just get ripped apart, and he's just eating them. It drives home the fact that, oh no, this is going to try to eat or kill me. Consequences. Like, yeah. It has all those paintings on the ceiling about him killing children and eating them. It has that pile of children's shoes in the corner to show that this is something that he does, and that's what this monster... But he doesn't eat leather. No. no. That's bad nope. for your tum-tum. Yeah. Mm. Too much fiber. It upsets the digestion. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, when they're leaving, because, the, you know, she sees this before she ever eats the grapes. She's like, oh, yeah, it's a creepy thing, but it's just sitting there, and it's not doing anything, and you know, I could probably do this and get away with it. And then when it happens, Ophelia does a great job there of just selling the complete and utter fear of like, oh God. And then running after it and the hourglass running out, that whole scene, the tension was great. And they didn't need to downplay the monster so that the heroine could get away. It felt like, oh no, this is actually going as fast as it wants to. And it is perfectly confident it's going to get her. So that yeah. it pays off well. Mm-hmm. Instead of one of those like, oh, well, you know, she has to escape, so I'm not really worried about it. I was like, hmm. How, how are they going like, to Like Caleb said, he held his breath for three and a half minutes because <laughs> it's a tense scene. And then even after she, like, closes the door on him, you, you can still hear whatever noise he's making for a couple of seconds afterwards. Yeah, and like pushing yeah, against him. Yeah. So, like, it is a phenomenal scene in that it completely accomplishes its job in freaking me the heck out it doesn't rely on being sudden or scary it just builds and builds and builds even by just keeping the pale man in frame in the background when she's going to unlock the locks just to (laughs) keep just to remind you that he is there at all times and Chekhov's Pale Man will be unleashed at some point. <laughs> and it's, it's visual storytelling at its finest. Like, mm-hmm. Greg, and you have already pointed out, the pile of shoes, the paintings on the wall. We don't need this big exposition dump of, like, there's the Pale Man, and, you know, if you eat the fruit, this is how he attaches you, and his eyes are in his head. We didn't need an NPC explaining that. All we needed was her to be like, oh... There's paintings of kids getting eaten. There's a pile of shoes. And here's a creepy beast with two eyeballs on its plate. There might be a problem here. So I really <laughs> yeah, like dude. that. Yeah. I like how you called the fawn an NPC. Well, I mean, it, yeah. I mean, that, yeah, it's one way to put it. I just like that you said it that way. <laughs> Where did those well, other kids come from? Well, well, sitting, seeing as how he has probably been sitting there forever, mm-hmm. just wherever, you know? Just, you know, in his dimension somewhere. Yeah. They find a way yeah. into his place. and just yep, He just kind of goes into uh, hibernation until or has someone the comes and disturbs him. looking for Princess Moana for that long and, like, keeps sending kids down there and they keep failing. Oh, I like that dark interpretation. Yeah, I, I thought you <laughs> might like that one. Not my favorite, but it's something that's potentially possible. Well, fellas, let's get into the part where we ask, would you recommend this movie and under what circumstances? Caleb, you go first. All right. So 
Yes, I would recommend this movie pretty much under any circumstances. And the way you could tell that is that I told my mother about this movie. And my mother is where I get the scared of horror movie and just not really into gore part of my personality. But and I knew she wouldn't watch it, but I told her all about it anyway. We were on a, a road trip. And so, yeah, I would recommend this movie pretty much to most people if you're of age and you, you've heard about it and want to check it out, go on ahead. It is a, it's a great movie, some masterful storytelling. It's got that really enchanting feel. It feels like a dream that you had once, but you can't quite remember it. It is that level of captivating. But go online and look up uh, Mercedes Lullaby and just listen to that song and tell me you haven't heard it somewhere in a dream or in a vision somewhere. It is that level of in tune with the human experience. There's something about it. I just cannot let this one go. So yeah, it's a recommend from me. And Nick told me before he left that he would also recommend this movie. He didn't give much detail, but he tended to enjoy it and would say, check it out to everybody. I would also recommend it. Heads up for those who are Caleb-esque, there is a lot of blood and there are some scary parts. It's, it's rated R for a reason, but mm-hmm. it's a fantastic bit of filmmaking and storytelling with the cross-cutting between the fantastical and the real. Uh, all of the actors were really good. Shooting was fantastic. Overall, an enjoyable experience. Would definitely recommend. I definitely recommend this. I'm so glad that I chose this. Like I said, I had never watched it before and I was like, well, this you know, this might be a good watch for us. And having the ability to count this as another dark fairy tale adaptation, which I always like those, I'm very happy with. The acting was superb all the way across the board. Um, the child actress was on point. It definitely deserved the awards that it got. And uh, yeah, I just say universal watch for anybody who uh, wants to have a nice, sobering tale to to listen to that has a good happy ending and those recommends across the board that was our discussion of pan's labyrinth next week is my pick gentlemen next week we are going to watch there will be blood oh which i just saw for the first time recently and so it was really good and i would like to share that experience with you guys Mm, i have never Uh, seen it i I don't know if i've seen it i've heard about it but only by name so Excellent. So join us for that next week. Please follow us on all the social medias. We are Four Film Fellas, F-O-U-R Film Fellas on Facebook and Instagram. Feel free to watch that movie and join us next week. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye, everyone.